Welcome to Asia Rising, the podcast from La Trobe, Asia, where we discuss news, views, and general happenings of Asian states and societies. I'm your host, Matt Smith. After a quiet start to his presidency, United States President Joe Biden has made decisive steps in engaging with Asia by selling nuclear submarines to Australia and establishing the AUKUS Pact, outlining an approach to trade with China and hosting a Quad Summit at the White House. A major part of this strategy is building up alliances to drive responsible competition with China, with the withdrawal of the US from Afghanistan signaling a step away from the wars of the past two decades. Biden now has an opportunity to focus the US on the region it says is its highest priority. Here to discuss Biden's Asia agenda is Professor Nick Bisley, Dean of the School of Humanities and Social Sciences at La Trobe University. Thank you for joining me, Nick. Thanks, Matt. It's nice to be here in person. It's a strange new world for us. So to take it back a bit, a decade ago, Barack Obama stood before the Australian Parliament and said, I quote, Our enduring interests in the region demand our enduring presence in the region. The United States is a Pacific power and we are here to stay. So let there be no doubt, in the Asia-Pacific, in the 21st century, the United States of America is all in. So is Biden starting to give the pivot his own flavour at the moment? Well, yeah, so the pivot, for those um, who may have come in a little late, was the term that the Obama administration used to emphasise that sentiment that he articulated to the Australian Parliament in 2011, that is, that the US was going to focus its foreign policy on the Asia-Pacific, and the emphasis, of course, is being moving out of those uh, long-running conflicts that had focused so much of its time and attention, and the like in Southwest Asia, so in Iraq and Afghanistan. Biden, of course, was Obama's vice president, and many of the key players in Biden's foreign policy administration served in the Obama administration. So we were all expecting a kind of Obama 3.0 or however you want to style it, a bit of more continuity than change, I guess, with, a, with Obama. A pivot the next generation. Yeah, there you go. There's the, there's the second series. And in some respects, it was a little surprising that it has taken as much time as it has for the contours of America's Asia policy to kind of come into some relief. Uh, and I think partly that reflects the fact that Biden's presidency has and frankly will remain heavily domestically focused um, because of the pandemic, because of the absolute astonishing partisanship and partisan division within the US, his administration is a sort of first, middle and last focus is is domestic. And so I think getting all of the big bits of machinery of government kind of lined up to get the Asia stuff going is, has taken a little longer than we might have anticipated. But probably the thing that has stood out most clearly from my mind has been less the kind of points of continuity between Obama and Biden, but more the points of continuity between Trump and Biden and the way in which much of what we see from the Biden folks is, okay, stripped of the Trumpian craziness and the rhetoric and the risky talk around fire and fury and, you know, impending nuclear war. You know, you take the atmospherics out of it. There is a great deal of continuity in the way America's approaching the region between Trump and Biden mm. than one might have expected. Is that because there's a bit of inevitability once Trump starts the train going, it's a bit hard to get off? I think that's part of it. I think also part of it is is the China story, and in particular, the way in which attitudes in Washington have really coalesced behind a pretty hardline view of China that, you know, the sentiment is, without wanting to get into, you know, there's a lot of push and pull about the extent to which previous policies were 
too soft on China and everyone's trying to sort of blame people that came before them. But I think the sense was that the Obama administration probably in the first couple of years didn't see China for the sort of overt peer competitor, as they like to say, that Xi Jinping's China presented and that you know they tried to pursue a much more collaborative relationship that really went nowhere. Within the US, that sentiment pretty bipartisan, so it's across parties, it's across private sector as well as the public sector, that China is a threat, a challenge, not to be trusted, and you know the US needs to sort of push back much harder against what it's been doing. Even if you were in Biden's shoes and did want to pursue a more accommodationist approach or a more engagement approach to, to China, your options are pretty narrow that because there's such a strong consensus around the way in which the US have been approaching the PRC. So it would make, makes unpicking all of that very difficult. The other point, I think, is that there is, as you said, there's a degree of kind of path dependence. Once you've set down a, a course, it's actually quite tricky to, to unpick it. Mm. Um, and I think for the US policy in the region more generally, to deviate significantly from what they'd inherited from Trump would be quite difficult and quite costly. So I think there are these big factors, big driving factors that have led to this sort of more continuity than change. Okay, let's talk about a few of the big actions that he's done in the past year. And we'll, we'll start it with the big, big one from our perspective, which is AUKUS. So that arrangement will see the US provide nuclear submarines to Australia. What do you make of this alliance? And how do you think it will alter regional security? Uh, it's, it's hard to talk about it at the moment, because if you strip it right back, it's a tech sharing agreement between three countries that already have very, very close intelligence and defence relationships. So there's a bit of a tendency to kind of overstate its novelty and significance on the one hand. And it's also an announcement to spend 18 months looking at the practicalities of delivering nuclear-powered submarines. Mm. Now, very unlikely that that's not going to come into being. There is likely to be nuclear submarines coming down the turnpike any time in the next four decades. So it's not we're not going to see this thing come into life as a submarine deal, quite possibly even in my lifetime. Yeah. Um, but as a signal around how the US, the UK and Australia view the region, signal about the need to bring in extra regional powers, even with the pretty, I think, unhelpful resonance of the Anglosphere and, you know, why he's showing up to collaborate to help keep the Chinese communist menace at bay. You know, there's some pretty, I think, unfortunate optics around all of that. It does reflect in some important signalling around all of that. But what it will actually mean, we just it's way too early to tell because nothing concrete has happened yet. As I said, it's it's really about tightening up strategic and defence relationships around technology that are already pretty close. You know, it's hard to imagine Australia and the US getting any closer and we just <laughs> managed to do it. In the main, I think the, the thing is, you know, it's a, a bit too early to tell. But as a sign of the times, that is, A, Asia is the most important theatre, that the UK finds Asia as a place it needs to be seen. You also see that Germans, and the, the level of frustration that the French have had, not just at being you know, stabbed in the back, but that their focus on how they are going to compete or play a part in this region has been undermined by these activities, tells you that the region is really front of mind for all of the world's significant players. It's an important signal around all of that, and frankly, it's an important signal that all of the key players are thinking military first about how to manage this region. So it's not thinking about diplomacy and development and infrastructure, although that's there in the background and they'll be talking about it. The militarised dimension of this competition is the bit that's really foregrounded and, and frankly quite worrying because of all of that, because they're upping the, the uh, general 
kind of risk that we're going to enter into a much more hyper-competitive environment in which competition is thought of in those explicitly military terms. It's interesting that there's been no real negative fallout towards the US from, say, France or any other European countries for this. Uh, It's fallen back badly on Australia, especially from the French, but the diplomatic white-anting hasn't been an aspect of it for Biden and America. Oh, there was a little bit. The Biden people dripped out stuff to Axios, Jonathan Swan. If you're in the White House and you want to spill the beans... Jonathan Swan is the guy to go to. There was an interview a few weeks back where the the Biden people were pretty clearly ticked off at the Australians because the indication they gave was the, the Australians had said, it's all in hand, mate, no worries. We've told oh, them. really? Yeah, the, and they just said, well, as far as we understood, our partners had indicated that this was very much, you know, they really, in as much as you'll ever see a public dumping on Australia by an American set of administration, that was about as public as, it, as it's likely to get. They were pretty ticked off. The benefits that we got from it was an a bit more shock and awe in the announcement. Seems a pretty strange calculation of cost and benefit on all of that. And of course, the Chinese think, great, look, the Western alliance is divided. This is like priority number two yeah. um, in their broader thinking. So it has blown back, I think, in ways that one hopes if they had their time again, they'd do it differently. Yeah, okay. A pivot needs more than a security arrangement, though. On the economic front, the Biden administration seems to reduce trade tension with China but it will keep in place most of the tariffs imposed by former President Donald Trump. So what economic plans could develop and could the US now seek inclusion in the big trans-Pacific deal that the Obama administration negotiated but that Trump rejected? I think this is the biggest problem with America's approach to the region, the geoeconomic dimension more broadly and then the trade policy aspects of it specifically because the, the politics of trade within the United States have been increasingly nationalist and mercantilist for getting on for nearly, a maybe not a decade, but it certainly precedes Trump's time in office. Hillary Clinton felt the need to campaign on the fact that she wouldn't sign on to TPP and everyone kind of thought, wow, she's just saying that for the electorate. But when you look back based on where things are now, you realise that actually the, the domestic politics of trade is has turned very strongly against that sort of liberal free market free trade kind of sentiment that had prevailed really from Clinton through until the Obama administration. And so within the Biden administration, I think there are people who would dearly love to sort of jump straight back into that playbook that the Obama people had that said, you know, the pivot was about, there was a military dimension, but there was an economic dimension. There was an institutional dimension around, you know, showing up to ASEAN and all of those sorts of summits. And the economic dimension was centered around the Trans-Pacific Partnership. You know that there are people like Kurt Campbell and the like in the in the administration who would desperately love to, to get back in there, but they just know politically they can't do it. And then you had on, I think, the day after or very shortly after AUKUS was announced, the PRC stood up and said, we would like to join CPTPP. So not only are the Americans hogtied domestically in terms of the politics of rejoining it, China is showing significant confidence, some would say chutzpah, in saying, oh, we'll join this thing that you set up to contain us that you've now haven't joined, and actually we think it might be interesting. Now, there's a bit of a debate between people as to how serious China is about joining, because there's those who say, actually, this is in China's interest to join it. It'll help drive domestic economic reform. It'll get all these benefits from market integration and the like. And then there's others who say, well, you know, it's it, the... the it's um, against the spirit of it. Well, <laughs> <laughs> well, just, what China would have to do to join would be so significant and that she has so no interest, real interest in doing that kind of economic reform that it looks to be a political play to make America look bad. Now, who knows where the reality is going to end up. 
But I think that's the sort of missing centerpiece of American Asia strategy is the reality is most countries in the region still have China as their number one trading partner. It's a growing investment partner, a source of investment across the region. And unless America can see off that level of influence, it's always going to be pushing against a country that has got not just growing military capacity and the advantage of being physically in the region. Of course, the US has to depend on all of these alliance relationships to get itself in the region. The center of economic gravity is around Beijing, and it's playing a a geoeconomic strategy on the basis of that. And so I think until the US can get its head around that one, it will be not fighting with one hand behind its back, but what it can do will be constrained. Mm. Okay. And uh, as far as the the tariffs still being in place from the Trump era, while there was a lot of democratic criticism of the tariffs when they were put in place, they are now a useful blunt stick, I guess. Yeah, the the other view is they could also be negotiating things. So if you you, you want to hang on to them, <laughs> I was no, crudely getting to that. <laughs> well, you hang on to them, and then you can dole them out yeah. uh, as time goes by. And certainly, there are many interest groups in the PRC who would desperately like those tariffs to be unwound. And some have thought, you know, that they may play a part in that bigger geostrategic positioning. I just think the again the optics of all of this domestically for for Biden and Co would be very difficult to unwind. Um, mm. To be really blunt, I think the way Biden foreign policy has been perceived within the US has been really poor. I still think if you go back to the AUKUS announcement, took out Biden and put in Trump, the liberal media elite would have gone bananas at what a disaster this was and how selling nuclear submarines to Australia, nuclear proliferation, ticking off the French, what a catastrophe this foreign policy is. And I think the domestic view of Biden's foreign policy has been that it's a bit of a shambles, even if you think the strategy is good, the implementation is weak unwinding punitive tariffs on China will just play into that narrative. So I think even if they wanted to play that card, I think it's going to be hamstrung on this stuff. Yeah, yeah. All right, so let's turn to diplomacy now. So diplomacy in Asia may be promising as China's aggressive wolf warrior diplomacy has made some Asian nations wary of China and open to closer ties with the United States. How do you see the pieces moving around the chessboard? The Wolf Warrior stuff has been you know, a bit of an own goal for the PRC, and, and it's interesting because in many respects it was a bit of a mirror of Trump's foreign policy where, or in fact any parts of the Trump administration's foreign policy more broadly, where whoever was in front of the microphone, whether it was trade or whether it was you know a domestic issue, was singing a song to a single audience sitting in 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. I think in many respects a lot of the Wolf Warrior diplomacy stuff is is pitched back home to Beijing. But I think the PRC has realised that this is backfiring on them. The speed with which countries have been taken aback by the PRC because of this stuff has been a little surprising to Beijing. So I think you'll see that unwind a little. I don't think it has converted anyone. I don't think you've seen a country jump from one side of the ledger to the other because of it. But I think it's hardened some views in countries that might have been a little China sceptical to say, actually, these guys are, you know, they really don't care what we think and they do think that they're better than us and maybe we need to work a little bit more closely with the Americans. So it's, I think it's been something that's helped sharpen thinking in certain countries without being sort of determinative. But as I was sort of hinting at earlier, they're not the only ones who've not been doing diplomacy as well as they might have mm. in the region in managing all of this geopolitics. And I think the management of American foreign policy more broadly has not been great. And if you were to do a quick survey in Southeast Asia and say, what do you think of the Biden administration's diplomacy in the region so far, you'd have some pretty quizzical looks. So, you know, the focus on the region has been very heavily eyed on key countries. So it's Japan, it's China, 
in Southeast Asia, it's Singapore and Vietnam. I think there's a sense that A, Southeast Asia is not the priority, that it should be key countries are feeling snubbed, and then ASEAN itself is also feeling as if it has been left behind. So the Obama administration was really heavily focused on ASEAN as the sort of institutional pillar of its pivot. The Biden people are good at talking about ASEAN being key, but yet to deliver in ways that the ASEAN sort of stakeholders, if you like, feel is convincing. Now, it's early days a little bit, but I think the these of the Biden administration give away the fact that most of the key players think ASEAN's a talk shop, it's hot air, and in times of geopolitical competition, you need things that get results. And so we've got the Quad and we've got AUKUS and we've got stuff that does stuff. Yep. And that may be true, but in Southeast Asia, ASEAN is still you know the first and last thing most countries' foreign policies think about in the morning and the evening. And I think if you're judging everyone's strategy, wolf warrior diplomacy hasn't been productive for, for China, no question. But the way, in particular, the Southeast Asia game has been played in the AUKUS stuff, I think you'd, you'd say both sides could improve. Mm. Lastly, I'd like to turn to uh, Kurt Campbell, if we could, arguably the architect of the pivot, involved in a number of previous administrations when talking about Asia, and he is now Biden's top Asia advisor on the National Security Council, appointed there on day one of the presidency. What signal does this role in Asia bring for the future? The signal they were sending with this appointment was to say, we're trying to make this region our primary theatre of operations, and the National Security Council is supposed to be the bit that manages the interagency process, a rather unlovely term that's really about coordinating all the different branches, and there are many of them, of the American government, you know, in intelligence and defence and development and diplomacy and all of those bits and coordinates them. So when you say, we want to do A, B and C in the region, here's how it's all going to get lined up. And to say we're going to have someone who's not just a national security advisor, but someone who's got the Asia slash Indo-Pacific brief, as well as having a China person and a Northeast Asia person and a Southeast Asia person, said, A, this is a priority, and B, provide some kind of institutional mechanics to, to make all of that happen. And then, of course, you've got a Division One grade A kind of you know, establishment figure who's been around the block, who knows everyone of significance. People can work with him on both sides of the aisle. So it sends some important signals. But... You know, I think ultimately the constraint that they found is the sort of thing we were talking about earlier, that the domestic priorities are, are you know, so significant. COVID is really constraining what they can do, whether that's about physically showing up to undertake meetings in a part of the world where being there and shaking the hands and looking in the eyes and singing the songs together really matters. More broadly, I still think there's a sense that they come from a, a view of how the region works that's a little bit out of date. Mm. That's to say this sense of if we can get all of the sort of liberal institutional architecture set up and we get all of the right countries lined up together, we can keep China back and we can keep things as they have been for decades and decades continuing out indefinitely. Whereas I think what we see out in the region now is that China's military power is such that containing it a la even 2010 looks increasingly implausible that nationalism and geoeconomics makes old liberal thinking about how to do economic interdependence kind of out of date. And the way countries think about their interests, you know, I think the game is much harder to play and America's just got less influence than it's had in the past. And so we've, I think all of that together has meant that his ability to kind of get a grip on things is, is a bit limited. And then I guess the final thing before you open up to questions is, 
Afghanistan and Iraq and the Middle East and Western Europe still kind of pulls America in, and I find it very difficult to get that sort of North Atlantic or just the old inertia of where America's been for so long completely out of their system. So all of that together has made, yes, having him there has been an important development and it signals a great deal, but there's still a long way to go. Mm. All right. So uh, we'll open up the talkback line now. So the first question that we'll go to is from Robert Montenegro. Robert, are you there? I am. Hello. Greetings from Washington State here, uh, here in the West Coast of the United States. Given how mercurial American politics has become and the not insignificant chance that Biden could be replaced with a Republican president as soon as 2025, are Asian nations in Australia more hesitant to seek commitments from the U.S. government? Yeah, interesting question. And I'm trying to work out what time it is over there. I guess it's <laughs> what it's probably late, after, late afternoon, early evening, isn't it? Yesterday. So thanks for tuning in. You know, if you look at AUKUS as an agreement, let's assume it, it plays out the way we anticipate it's going to play out. Australia has tied itself unambiguously to the United States in spite of the fact that, uh, as you said, the mercurial qualities of American politics means that I think there's a better than even money chance right now that you have either Trump in the White House or a pretty Trumpian figure and that the Republican Party shows no signs of the sort of Trumpian instinct easing off anytime soon. I was struck by the way in which Australia in particular has not thought that that is worth thinking through as a sort of plan B. Listeners to this podcast will have heard me say this before, that Trump's greatest gift to allies of the United States was a reminder that countries don't always think about their interests forever in the same way. And we seem to have looked that in the eye and said, no, no, we think America will behave the way it has behaved for the past six or seven decades in the region over the next five decades, even though... All of the evidence before us in terms of the domestic politics in the United States says that may not be certain. Whereas you see in other parts of the region, Korea is probably the most obvious one where there is a gap opening up, is probably a better way of putting it, between the US and its one of its key allies in Northeast Asia, in which the sort of Trumpian element is just one part of the reason why they are not quite as focused on China as threat in the same way that, say, Japan or certainly the Australian government is, is thinking about it. and But that part of the kind of America first, for want of a better phrase, instinct in that Trumpian side of the Republican Party um, gives them some pause for thought. And I think you're beginning to see that play out more in the region. And as I said, I was surprised that that has not been a bigger part of the thinking in, in Canberra. We've gone the other way. We've just said well, we're betting the house on, on the US coming back to quote-unquote normal. Yeah. Okay, look, one final question, and this is from an anonymous attendee, so I'll, I'll read it out myself. U.S. policy is to support Taiwan's self-defense, but recently Biden said the U.S. will come to the defense of Taiwan. Do you think Biden misspoke, Biden is intentionally muddying the waters, or see U.S. troops and therefore Australian troops will actively defend Taiwan if China tries to take it? Oh, the, the messy ambiguity of the Taiwan policy. I think my first instinct on hearing this was, it's Biden. Mm. He was like this 30 years ago, and he's an old guy. On reflection, he got into, we recognize one China and this sort of stuff. Meanwhile, we guaranteed Taiwanese security. We have our entire war planning in the Western Pacific organized around the ability to see off a Chinese attack on Taiwan. There's a, and, and I have no doubt that under particular circumstances, there's no question that the US will defend Taiwan were China to undertake a hostile and perceived to be the aggressive actor mm -hmm. uh, on Taiwan. I have no question that that is its plans. 
in that circumstance, it is likely to put considerable pressure on its allies to participate. And if the circumstances were right, I think, A, the expectations would be that Australia and others would participate to the extent to which their domestic circumstances allow. The reason I'm saying that is there's only so much Japan can do because of its constitution. And certainly if we have a government in Canberra that looks and acts the way our current government does, we will be involved. Now, whether that's the right thing to do, I don't know. In fact, I'm pretty sure it's not, strategically speaking. But it would all depend on the circumstances. That's why Taiwan is such a particularly dangerous scenario right now, because for both the PRC and the US, under the right circumstances, a Taiwan contingency becomes a question of resolve and a question of credibility, and you might even say a question of honour. Mm-hmm. And when you've got that as part of the thinking, managing these crises and keeping them corralled and keeping big nasty wars at bay becomes so much harder. It's a really risky situation we're in. And, you know, as Australians, we've tied ourselves very clearly, unambiguously to one side of that. Well, to bring it full circle, let's hope we have our shiny new submarines by then. Thank you very much, everyone, for your great questions today. And thank you for your time today, Nick. Thank you. You've been listening to Asia Rising, a podcast from La Trobe, Asia. If you like this podcast, you can subscribe to it in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you may cast your pod. Please leave a review there. They are always very appreciated. You can follow Nick Bisley on Twitter. He is at Nick Bisley. You can follow La Trobe, Asia on Twitter. We are at La Trobe, Asia. I'm Matt Smith, sitting off camera, and thanks for listening. <laughs>